0: Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning this week's Drabblecast has a curse word in it or two. Just a heads up. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 239. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Got a really interesting sci-fi story bordering on horror this week, but first, a hundred-word story. Drabble! This week's Drabble is called Polly's Fallacy, and it was written by Lauren Eaton. Lauren lives in South Florida with his wife and children. He spends his days writing, studying for a master's degree in business administration, and telling his kids how Bob the Builder should incorporate more non-Euclidean geometry into his designs. Lauren's fictions appeared in several anthologies by Untread Reads and in Needle, a magazine of noir. Check out his blog at I isawlightningfall.com. No two objects can occupy the same place at the same time. So I thought, until yesterday. I was driving, a standard pizza-delivering college dropout. Meanwhile, across the multiverse, Lord Eaglesham McRain Enric the 57th folded time and space without proper charting, accidentally merging with me at the corner of Federal and Commercial. I still schlep Papa John's around but I know things. Eaglesham's esteemed family tree, his dire fiscal straits, the forbidden dimensional geometries he plumbed. Why flee so recklessly? I have glimpses. Something vast, hungry, eternally patient. He knew it wouldn't stop until it found him. Or now, rather, me. Oh snap. Yep, on this week's show, Time and Interdimensional Travel, one of my favorite subjects. What do we want? Time travel! When do we want it? Irrelevant! You know, I've often fantasized about what I'd do if I could travel back in time. Cash in on all those naps I refused as a kid. Leave around confusing messages for my past self, like, Norm, it's future Norm, bring a hacksaw to work today, you're gonna hit Todd with your truck. Maybe go back to the moment just before President Kennedy was assassinated and borrow some cash from him. I don't know, but just like the seeping tortillon walls of a hastily slapped together cheesy gordita crunch from Taco Bell, things get messy when you fold space and time. If time travel were possible, Steven Tyler would travel back in time to erase his embarrassing past as Jen, the Gelfling in Dark Crystal, subsequently preventing the Mystics and Skeksis from becoming as one under the three moons of Thra. If time travel were possible, the 1995 Dr. Dre would find out he's charging 300 bucks for a pair of headphones in the future, quit his medical practice, and promptly cap 2012 Dr. Dre. Most likely with a nine, and most likely in the grill. You best check yourself, cause when you diss Dre, you diss yourself. Motherf- yeah. When you diss Dre, you diss yourself. Clearly talking about the Dr. Dre time travel paradox, which speculates that traveling back in time to diss Dr. Dre of the past results in your own inevitable dissing. It's pretty heavy stuff. Stephen Hawking's got a book on it, I think. Mm. Most of you would probably travel back in time to invest in Google or Apple before remembering you didn't have any money to invest back then either. And then you'd all be borrowing money from Kennedy too. It just gets complicated. But don't take it from me. Take it from this week's story Killing the Morrow by Robert Reed. Mr. Reed's had 11 novels published, starting with The Lee Shore in 1987, and most recently with The Well of Stars in 2004. Since winning the annual L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future contest in 1986, and being a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 1987, he's had over 180 shorter works published in a variety of magazines and anthologies. He's been nominated for both the Hugo and Nebula Awards, and won his first Hugo Award back in 2006 for the novella A Billion Eves, not to mention Best Story in the 2009 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards for a story floating over time. Killing the Morrow first appeared in Patrick Neil Hayden's 1996 anthology, Starlight One. So, without further ado, we bring you Killing the Morrow by Robert Reed. share of disembodied voices. I'm accustomed to their fickle, sometimes bizarre demands. But tonight's voice is different, clear as gin and utterly compelling. I must listen. Sitting inside my old packing crate, my worldly possessions at arm's length, I am fed instructions that erase everything familiar and prosaic. Yet I cannot resist, cannot offer even a token resistance. Now, crawling out of my little house and rising, my heart pounding as the last shreds of sanity are lost to me. I've lived in this alleyway for eight months, yet I don't look back. I'm in poor physical condition and my shoes are worn through, but I walk several miles without rest, without complaint. And there are others, too. The streets are full of silent walkers. They exhibit a calmness, a liquid orderliness that would disturb the healthy observer. Yet I barely notice the others. I want a specific street, which I find, turning right and following it for another mile. The tall buildings fall away into trim, working-class houses. Another street beckons. I start to read the numbers on mailboxes. The house I want is on a corner, lit up, and the front door left open. I step inside without ringing the bell, thinking that the place looks familiar, as if I've been here before, or maybe seen it in dreams. My new life begins. More than most, I have experience with radical change, with the vagaries of existence. Tonight's change is simply more sudden and more tightly orchestrated than those of the past. I'm here for a reason, no doubt about it. There's some grand cause that will be explained in due time. And meanwhile, there's pleasure. For the first time in years, existence has a palatable purpose, authority, and as astonishing as it seems, a genuine beauty. An opened can of warming beer is set on the coffee table. I pick it up and sniff, then set it down again, which is uncharacteristic for me. An enormous television is in the corner, the all-sports channel still broadcasting, nothing to see but an empty court and arena. The game was canceled without fuss. Somehow I know that nobody will ever again play that particular sport, that it was rendered extinct in an instant. Yet any sense of loss is cushioned by the voice. It makes me crumple into a lumpy sofa, listening and nodding, eyes fixed on nothing. Tools are in the garage, I'm told. I carry them into the living room, arranging them according to their use. Then, armed with a short, rusty crowbar, I head upstairs, finding the bathroom and a big steel bathtub, and with the crowbar, I start to batter the mildewed tile and plaster, startled cockroaches fleeing the light. After a little while, the front door opens, closes. I go downstairs. Part of me is curious. A handsome woman is waiting for me, offering a thin smile. She's dressed in quality clothes, and she's my age, but with much less mileage. That smile of hers is hopeful, even enthusiastic, but beneath it is a much-hidden sense of terror. What's her name, I wonder? But I won't ask, nor does she ask about me. With two backs available, we start to clear the living room of furniture and the dusty old carpeting. By now, the television has gone blank. I unplug it, and together we carry it to the curb. Electronics are an important resource. Our neighbors, mismatched couples like ourselves, are doing the same job. Stereos and microwave ovens and televisions stacked and covered carefully with plastic. Firearms make smaller, secondary piles. Then, around midnight, a large truck arrives. I'm dragging out the last of the carpeting, pausing long enough to watch a crew of burly men loading everything into the long trailer. One of them seems familiar. He was a police officer, wasn't he? He bullied me on several occasions for the fun of it. And now we are equals, animosity nothing but a luxury. I manage to wave at him. No response. Then I return to the house, never hurrying. Rain begins to fall, fat, cold drops striking the back of my neck, and with them comes a fatigue, sudden and profound, that leaves my legs shaking and my breath coming in little wet gulps. The voice has already told us to sleep when it's needed. The woman and I move upstairs, climbing into the same bed without undressing. Nudity is permitted. Many things are permitted, we've been told. But I can't help thinking of the woman's terror as I lie beside her, looking as I do, unshaved and filthy, wearing sores and months of grime. It's better to do nothing, I decide. Just to sleep. Good night, I whisper. She isn't crying, but when she says, sleep well, I hear her working not to cry the words tight and slow. Was she married in her former life? She doesn't wear any rings, yet she seems like a person who would enjoy, even demand, marriage. She's awake for more than an hour, lying as motionless as possible, her ordinary old parts struggling to find some reason for the bizarre things that are happening now. I feel pity. Yet, for the most part, I like these changes. The bed is soft, the sheets almost clean. I lie awake out of contentment, listening to the rain on the roof and thinking about my packing crates in the alleyway, feeling no fondness at all for that dead past. I dream of grass, astonishing as that seems, of an ape-man. Now that's a lousy term, hominid is more appropriate. The creature walks under a bright tropical sky, minding its own narrow business. A male, I realize. I'm sitting in the future, watching it from ground level and feeling waves of excitement. Here is an ancestor of the human species, naked and lovely, and it doesn't even notice me, strolling past and out of sight. I have seen through time changing nothing. Aren't I a clever ape? I ask myself. Not clever enough, a voice warns me. A quiet, almost whispered voice. We divide our jobs according to ability. Being somewhat stronger than the woman, I work to dislodge the bathtub from the wall, then lever it into the hallway and shove it down the splintering wood stairs. And meanwhile, the woman has cleaned the living room a dozen times, at least, the windows covered with foil and the air heavy with chlorine. Vans and small trucks begin to deliver equipment. Thermostats and filters have been adapted from local stocks, I suppose. More sophisticated machinery arrives later. Jugs of thick, clear fluid are stacked in the darkest corner. Perfect cleanliness isn't mandatory, yet the woman struggles to keep the room surgically clean, hoping that the voice will applaud her efforts. She's first to say, the voice comes from the future. Obviously, yes. From the distant future, she adds. I can't guess dates, but... It seems likely. And this is a womb, she remarks, pointing at the old bathtub. Here is where the future will be born. The voice speaks differently to different people, it seems. I assumed that the tub was an elaborate growth chamber, but how exactly does one grow the future? Taking me by the waist, she says, it'll be like our own child. I make affirmative sounds, but something feels wrong. I love you, she assures me. I love you, I lie. Nothing is as vital to her as her illusions of the loving family. Does the voice know that? In the night, between work and sleep, she invites me to her side of the bed. It's been a long time. My performance is less than sterling, but at least the experience is pleasant, building new bonds. Then afterward, we cuddle under the sheets, whisper in secret tones, then drift off into a fine, deep sleep, dreams coming from the darkness. Rain falls in my dreams. Motion, I learn, is matter shaped by the hand of chaos. Tiny variations in wind and moisture will conspire to ignite or extinguish entire storms. And no conceivable machine or mind can know every fluctuation, every inspiration. It's not even possible to predict which minuscule event will produce the perfect day, leaving millions of lives changed, the fundamental shape of everything warped ever so slightly. Suppose you can reach back in time, says my dream voice. Suppose you're aware of the dangers in changing what was. But you have ego enough to accept the risks. Channeling vast energies, you create your windows entirely from local materials. It is thermally identical to the surrounding ground. You limit your study to a few useful moments. All you allow yourself is a camera and transmitter, intricate but indistinguishable from the local sand and grit. The hominid can stare at the window. He can stomp on it. He can fling it, eat it, or simply ignore it. But nothing, nothing he can do will make it behave as anything but the perfect grain of dirty quartz. And yet, says the dream voice, despite your hard work and cleverness, there is some telling impact. Perhaps heat leaked from the mechanism, atoms jostled by their touch, or perhaps its optical energies were imperfectly balanced, excess photons added to or taken away from the local environment. There would be no way to know what went wrong. But the consequences will spread, becoming apparent, growing from nothing until they encompass everything. The universe I'm learning is incomprehensibly fragile. How can any person, any intelligence, hope to put everything back where it belongs? A young man delivers foodstuffs and other general supplies coming twice a week and sometimes he lingers on the porch telling me what he's seen around town. Factories and warehouses have been refurbished, he says. Old people and eerily patient children work and live inside them. Some of the factories make the machines that fill my living room slash nursery, but the majority of the products are stranger. He grins, describing brilliant lights and tiny power plants, robots and more robots. Isn't it all amazing? Wondrous and fun? I nod. Astonishment does seem like the day's most abundant product. The woman dislikes my chatting with the young man. She feels that he's a poor worker, obviously not paying ample attention to the voice. For the first time, for just an instant, I wonder if the voice doesn't touch people with equal force. For instance, the woman claims to hear it all the time, her initial terror replaced with energy and commitment. Or at least the nervous desire to please it. But for me, there are long periods of silence, of relative peace. It's the woman who wakes first in the morning. It's the woman who loses track of time and hunger, scrubbing the floor until her hands bleed. And she's the one who snaps at the delivery boy, telling him, you're not helping us at all. To which he says, except I am. At once, without hesitation, he says, Part of my job is to tell others what I see, to keep them aware of what's being done. How else can you know? You can't go anywhere. Your job is to stay put, and you're doing that perfectly. The logic has its impact. She retreats with a growl, her anger helping her polish the bathtub for an umpteenth time. I wonder, in secret, if the delivery boy is telling the truth, or is he a clever liar? And how can I wonder about such things? Just considering the possibility of subterfuge is a kind of subterfuge, particularly when I find myself admiring the boy's courage in secret. The past has changed, I learn in my sleep. Small events have evolved into mammoth ones. Perhaps an excess heat caused an instability that altered the precise pattern of raindrops in a summer shower. Hominids made love in the rain. It's not that they wouldn't have had rain, but it's the delicate impact of thousands of raindrops that matter. Eggs and sperm are extraordinarily sensitive, I am learning. Change any parameter, the instant of ejaculation, the angle of thrust, the simplest groan of thanks, and a different sperm will find its target. Even the drumming of raindrops will jostle the testicles enough, now and then, and produce different offspring, which in turn means a different human evolution. The species isn't altered appreciably. People remain people, good and not, nor is the character of history changed. Humankind will master the same tools, then warfare and the intricacies of nation states. What? What matters is that the specific faces will change, and the names, every historical figure erased along with every anonymous one, an enormous wave-like disruption racing out through time. In order to kill myself, I don't have to kill my grandpa. I just have to tickle his hairy balls. They bring the embryo in, of all things, an old florist's van. Each house on our street gets its own embryo, and the voice fills everyone with a sense of honor and duty. We've sealed the bathtub's drain, then filled it with the heavy fluids. Tubes pump in oxygen. The workers connect the embryo to a plastic umbilical. Then I help the woman check every dial and sensor, making certain that the tiny smear of living tissue is healthy. It doubles in size that day and every day, hands and feet showing before the end of the week. It's not growing like any human, but maybe that's a consequence of the fluids, or synthetic genes, or maybe all the generations of evolution between him and me. The woman shivers, weeps. Holding herself, she announces, at least one of us has to stay with it now. Always. In case of some unlikely, unforeseen problem, yes, we can pick up the telephone, emergency services waiting to troubleshoot. Night and day, she says with a thrill. I'll give her the night shift, I decide. This is our child, she claims, repeating what the voice tells her. Her own voice is stiff and dry, unabashedly fanatical. Don't you think he's lovely, darling? But he's not my child, or my grandchild either. For an instant, I consider mentioning my dreams of Africa and the vagaries of time. But then I think again some piece of me guessing that this woman has had no such dreams. Isn't he lovely? She asks again. Lovely, I say, without feeling. Yet the word itself is enough for her. She nods and smiles, her face lit up with the injected joy. The past is a sea, I dream. A great flat mirror of a sea. Standing on the present, on a low shoreline, I carelessly throw a grain of sand over my shoulder. Its impact is tiny, too tiny to observe, but the resulting wave is growing, a small ripple becoming a mountainous wall rushing straight at me. What can I do? Flee into the future. But with each step, the future becomes the present, and I can never run so far that the wave won't catch me, utterly and forever dissolving my existence. But there is one answer. Pack a bag, bend at the knees, and wait. Wait, then leap. With care and a certain desperate fearlessness, I can launch myself over the wave, evading it entirely. Then I'll fall again, tumbling onto the calm past, creating a second obliterating wave, but my own life saved regardless. Fuck the cost. Our child is less childlike with each passing day. Even the woman is having difficulty sounding like the proud parent. Curled in a fetal position, this citizen from the future resembles a middle-aged man comfortably plump and shockingly hairy, lost in sleep while his memories are placed inside his newly minted mind. I can't help but notice his brain is huge. I sit alone with him in the morning and again in the early evening, nothing to do but watch his slumber as well as the humming and clicking machines. It's ironic that this creature, having his existence threatened by the most trivial event, is now employing the coarsest tomfoolery to save his ass. The entire Earth must be involved. Every human and every resource is being marshaled to meet some rigorous schedule. This is an invasion. And like any invasion, Success hinges on the beachhead. The future is attempting to leap over its extinction. Very little room for error. And I'm beginning to notice how the voice, busy speaking to this Superman's mind, speaks less and less to me. The voice has its limits, of course. Yet at night, my dreams persist. That different voice Showing me wonders as fascinating as anything in my waking life. The delivery boy begins to arrive at irregular intervals, but never as often as before. To save gas, he claims, always smiling. But that smile has a satirical bite to it. And from now on, sorry, there's no more meat or eggs. For health reasons, perhaps... Or the invaders could be vegetarians. "'Let me look at yours,' says the boy, stepping indoors for the first time. He doesn't wait for approval, walking up to the bathtub and staring at the sleeping shape. "'I wonder what he's like. When he's finished, I mean.' "'I have no idea. And that bothers me. Of course he'll be grateful for your help, I'm sure of that. I'm nervous. It's against every rule to have visitors.' What if the woman wakes early and finds the boy here? What if a neighbor reports me? Touching a shoulder, I try easing him towards the door, asking in a whisper, What have you seen lately? He mentions giant machines that have rolled to the north. Bright lights show at night, and there's rumbling that might mean construction. A new city is being built, he hears, from others. I ask about the people who built those rolling machines. Where have they gone? Well, they've been reassigned, of course. There's always work to be done somewhere, always, always." He smiled at me, the message in his eyes. Then we reached the door, and again he stands on the porch, telling me, "'Once a week, and I don't know which day. No meat, no eggs. And that's a lovely boy you've got there. A real darling.'" I wash myself daily, using a shower in the basement. Rationing my soap, I've managed to stay clean for six months in a row. My loose-fitting clothes come from the closets and drawers. When they're gone, I put the soiled ones in the sun, cleaning them with light and heat. I wanted to seem more attractive to the woman. And for a little while, she was responding, but now she has doubts about sex, always distracted, needing to be in some position that leaves her able to monitor the dials. More and more, she complains about being tired or disinterested. The man-child's presence makes her edgy. I wish she'd become pregnant, except, of course, a pregnancy would be a problem, a division of allegiances. But then I realize that if the voice can speak to a mind interfacing with its network of interlocking neurons, then shouldn't it be able to speak to glands as well? Couldn't it put all of our bothersome sperm and eggs to sleep? One night, waking alone in bed, I feel a powerful desire to make love to a woman. I come downstairs and ask permission, and the woman's response is sharp. Not here, no which leads me to suggest that she abandon her post for a few minutes. I promise to hurry, and where's the harm? She gasps, moans, and nearly collapses. I can't do that. We'll never couple again. I know it, and it both saddens and relieves me. Alone, I feel free An old reflex lets me wonder where I could find someone else, a lady more amiable, someone that I've selected for myself. Beginning tomorrow morning, the woman sleeps in the living room on sheets and pillows spread over the clean, hard floor. She won't leave me alone at my post. She has a bucket next to the door where she pisses and shits. And when she looks at me... In those rare moments, nothing can hide her total scorn. This is my last lucid dream. I'm standing on the beach, sand without color and a wall of radiant ocean water roaring towards me. And then a woman appears. Like the man in my bathtub, she has an elongated skull and a superior intellect, but her face is completely human, showing a mixture of fear and empathy, as well as a sturdy strength born of convictions. We think they are wrong, she begins. Please remember this. Not all of us are like them. I nod, trying to describe my appreciation, but she interrupts, telling me, This is all we can do for you. I can't recognize her language, yet I understand every word. Best wishes, she says. Then she begins to cry. I try to embrace her. I step forward and open my arms, but then the water is on me, the beach and her dissolving into atoms, and my hands struggle to reassemble her from memory, the task impossible for every good reason. A new delivery boy arrives. Perhaps ten years old, he needs to make two trips from a station wagon, carrying the minimal groceries to the porch and no farther. I'm standing on my porch, waiting for the second load. Fresh air feels pleasant. The lawn has grown shaggy and seedy, the old furniture and carpeting rotting without complaint amidst the greenness. A quick calculation tells me that this is late autumn, early winter. The trees should have changed and lost their leaves by now, yet the world smells and tastes like spring, both climate and vegetation under some kind of powerful control. The boy struggles with a numbered sack. Not only is he small, he looks malnourished, but he brings my food with a fanatical sense of purpose, and when I ask about the other boy, the older boy, he merely replies, he's done. What does that mean? done, he repeats, angry not to be understood. Hearing our voices, the woman wakes and comes to the door. Get back in here, she snaps. I'm warning you. One last look at the improved world, then I retreat, taking both sacks with me. Meanwhile, the boy fires up the station wagon, black smoke dispersing in all directions. He looks silly, that fierce little head peering through the steering wheel. He pulls into the next driveway, and I wonder who lives in that house, and what do they dream about? The woman is complaining about my attitudes, my carelessness, everything. I'm a safer subject than the lousy quality of today's barley and rice. Come here, she tells me. Perhaps I will, perhaps I won't. Or I'll pick up the phone and complain, she threatens. She won't. First of all, I terrify her. What if I extracted some kind of vengeance in response? And secondly, the thought of being entirely alone must disturb her. I know it whenever I stare at her, making her shrink away. As much as she hates me, without my presence, she might forget that she's genuinely alive. The future doomed itself. Then it packed its bags, intending to save itself. But like a weather system, the future is too large and chaotic to be of one mind, holding to a single outcome. Some of its citizens argued that they didn't have the right to intrude on the past. Why should we supplant these primitive people? They asked. We screwed up, and if we were any sort of hominids, we would accept our fate and be done with it. But most of their species felt otherwise, and by concentrating the energies of two Earths, present and past, they felt there was a better than good chance of success, unaware of the secret movement in their midst, never guessing that there was a second surreptitious voice. Alarms wake me, and I rush downstairs just as the man-child is born. With a slow majesty, he sits up in the bathtub, the thick fluid sliding off his slick and hairy body. The beep-beep of the alarms quit, replaced with a scream from the woman. Look at you, she says. Oh, look at you. The man couldn't look more pissed, coughing until his lungs clear, then screwing up his face, saying something in that future language. A nearby machine activates itself, translating his words. I want water. Cold water. Get me water. I'll get it, I say. The woman is too busy grinning and applauding herself. You're a darling, lovely man, sir. And and I took care of you almost entirely by myself, I did. The man-child speaks again. I'm still thirsty, the machine reports, both voices impatient. In the kitchen, propped next to the back door, is the same crowbar that I used on the bathtub. That's what I bring him. A useful sense of rage has been building, probably from the beginning. This stranger and his ilk have destroyed my world. It's only fair, only just, to take the steel bar in my hands and swing, striking him before he has the strength or coordination to fight me. The woman wails and moans, too stunned to move. That elongated skull is paper-thin, demolished with the first blow, and its jelly-like contents scattered around the room. Too late, she grabs at me, trying to wrestle the crowbar from my hands. I throw her to the floor, considering a double homicide. But that wouldn't be right. Even when she picks up the phone and begs for help, I can't bring myself to kill her. Instead, I demolish the wall above her head, startling her, and when she crawls away I lift the receiver, grinning as I calmly tell whoever is listening. You're next, friend. Your time is just about done. Outdoors is the smell of sweet chemicals and smoke. Strange robotic craft streak overhead, probably heading for crisis points. They ignore me. Maybe too much is happening. Maybe their mechanisms were sabotaged at the factory. Either way, I'm left to move up the street, entering each house and killing the just-born invaders where I find them. It's messy, violent work. But in one living room, I find the parents slain, presumably by their thankless child. The ceiling creaks above their bodies. I climb the stairs on my toes, catching the murderer as she tries on spare clothes, pants around her knees, and no chance for her to grab her bloody softball bat. From then on, I'm a demon, focused and confident, and very nearly tireless. Finishing my block, I start for the next one. Rounding the corner of a house, I come face to face with a stout woman wielding a fire axe. The two of us pause, then smile, knowingly. Then we join forces. Toward dawn, taking a break from our gruesome work, I think to ask, what's your name? Laverne, she replies with a lifelong embarrassment. And yours? Harold, I confess, pleased that I can remember it after so long. Good to meet you. And Laverne is a lovely name. Later that day, she and I and 20 other new friends find the invaders barricaded inside a once-gorgeous mansion. Once it's burned to the ground, the city is liberated. Where now? How about north, Laverne suggests. I once heard that they were building something in that direction. I hug her. No words needed just now. We name our daughter Unique. The three of us are living in a city meant for the extinct future, in a shelter made from scraps and set between empty buildings. The buildings themselves are tall and clean, yet somehow very lonely edifices. They won't admit us, but they won't fight us either, and the climate remains ideal. Gardens thrive wherever the earth shows, and our neighbors are scarce and uniformly pleasant. One night, I speak to my infant daughter, telling her that perhaps someday she'll learn how to enter the buildings. Or better, tear them down and use their best parts. She acts agreeable, babbling something in her baby language. Laverne stretches out before me, naked and agreeable in a different sense. With a sly grin, she asks, care to ride the chaos, darling? always and gladly and together with every little motion we change the universe in ways we happily cannot predict. Know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Can't change the past without changing the future. It's an inescapable continuum, a vicious cycle, a catch 22. It's like if restrooms didn't always say gentlemen on them, I wouldn't have to keep peeing in trash cans. And if I didn't pee in trash cans as often, I'd be more of a gentleman. I'd be in there, man, peeing with the elite, eating scones. Wait, where where was I going with that? I don't know. Anyways, if you like this week's show, consider donating to the podcast. We rely 100% on listener donations to pay authors and keep things up week to week. Find support options off our webpage, drabblecast.org. It's easy, quick, and makes a direct impact on something you love tuning into each week. Any amount you can give is very much appreciated. Alright, so moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Loyal Eagle, with this one here. Heard you got pulled over by the Thought Police the other night. Yeah, I was thinking a mile a minute. In a school zone. Nice one. 100 character stories. Exactly 100 characters, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles because they fit nicely into a Twitter post, which is exactly what we do with the winner each week. Post it in our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast. Follow us there or try writing a twabble yourself and post it in the appropriate section of our discussion forums. You might be next week's winner. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's kick-ass episode artist, John DeBurge. John would like to apologize to all the listeners who are now questioning why this week's episode art isn't raindrops jostling a pair of testicles. Because man, is that mental image stuck in his brain. He hopes the bath-womb tub will suffice. Find a link to John in our show notes. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our submissions editor, Nathan Lee, editor-at-large, Matthew Bay, our art director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, you don't have to kill your grandpa, you just have to tickle his hairy balls.